This episode of Keeping It Real is brought to you by GoGo's Bootcamp. Are you a real estate agent looking for the very best media training program on the planet? GoGo Bethke is considered the top Instagram realtor in the country, and her step-by-step training program will take your social media game to the next level. Keeping It Real listeners receive a special discount, so please visit gogopodcast.com. That's G-O-G-O podcast.com for your special discount. And now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Keeping It Real, the largest podcast made by real estate agents and for real estate agents. My name is DJ Paris. As always, I am your guide and host through the show. And also, as always, we want to thank everyone who is listening to these words right now because you're the reason we do this show and really appreciate it. And we would also ask that you keep the train rolling by doing just really one thing. Tell a friend. Think of one other real estate agent that could benefit from hearing from great producers like Hans, which we're about to get to in just a moment, um, and tell them about the show. And you can send them over to our website where they can stream every episode we've ever done right from the site, or they can also subscribe via really any podcast app because we're on every directory. So just shoot them over to keepingitrealpod.com. You can see every episode that we've ever done there. So thanks again, guys. But now on to our interview with Olympic athlete turned top real estate agent, Hans Struzina. Today on the show, we have Hans Struzina from the Gunderman Group with Keller Williams Luxury International in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, let me tell you a little bit about Hans. Hans is a U.S. Olympian turned top producing Bay Area realtor and is a realtor partner with the Gunderman Group, the top team in the East Bay of the San Francisco Bay Area. Now, having done, and this is absolutely incredible, over 50 million in just under four years, uh, Hans believes in being coachable, applying what he learns to the benefit of his clients, and ultimately providing as much value as possible to his clients. And at the end of the day, he always says he is an advisor and not a decider and works to improve his skills and knowledge so he can live that out to at a high level. Hans is also the host of an interview-based podcast called Another Way to Play. We encourage everyone right now, grab your phone if you're, if you're not listening, well, even if you are listening to this on a phone or if you're watching watching us uh, live, grab your phone, pull up a podcast app and look up another way to play and subscribe. This is where Hans and his guests talk about mindset, probably the most important part of running a real estate practice uh, and how it helps you blow the roof off your success. So Hans is, is a triple threat. He's a top producing realtor, a podcaster, and of course, a US Olympian. We are so excited to have him on the show. Please visit him at his website, which is hansdruzina.com. And to spell that for you, it's H-A a-N-S-S-T-R-U-Z-Y-N-A.com. It'll also be in the show notes. Uh, please visit him there and subscribe to his podcast. Hans, welcome to the show. Man, I appreciate you having me on. This is awesome. 
Yeah, really excited. I, I never get to talk to other podcasters unless I get invited on a show and I never get invited on shows, but, uh, but I never get to talk to another podcaster, also top realtor and a US Olympian. You're the first Olympian we've had on the show. So uh, we're really excited to have you. Um, but, and I know you're relatively, I don't want to say new to real estate. You've done 50 million in production, but still in four years, that is beyond incredible. Um, do you mind sharing with our audience? Well, let's first start with the Olympics. How did you become an Olympian Olympic athlete? Gosh, uh, that's, that's, uh, a long story for sure. But the short version is essentially one day at a time. And, uh, I was in the sport for just over 12 years and it started in the Seattle, Washington area on Lake Sammamish. And, uh, we, as a family got word that we could take family lessons, like a group little private thing during the summer. And then my parents knew about rowing. They were not into rowing, but it was visible in the Pacific Northwest because there's water a lot of, all over the place. And um, we just thought that would be a cool thing. So we went down and, and tried it out. And basically it was kind of fun. I wasn't really doing another sport at the time because I a big part of my story is I grew late. Um, so athletically I was behind the curve for football and basketball and all that stuff. Yeah. And, uh, basically I wasn't doing a sport that, that fall. Um, cause I, <laughs> when I was playing football, I was the smallest guy, but one of the oldest, you know? And, sure. um, so I basically got convinced to join the team and then I joined the fall team and then I joined, kept going into the spring. And, and then once we hit the spring, that's what everyone says. You kind of get hit with this bug um, of rowing. And it's this weird thing that you kind of love it and you hate it at the same time. And it's hard <laughs> to explain for those who haven't done it, but I, I definitely loved it a little more than I hated it. Sure. <laughs> and I just kept going from there. Wow. So I, you've, so you've been rowing for, for 12 years. Yeah. Well, I, I guess I officially really retired in, uh, 2016 after the Olympics, but, but it wasn't, well, I officially really retired in 2018. Cause I was kind of half in half out for a couple of years, just deciding if I wanted to go back for another, another cycle or not. Um, but I did take af that whole year off. That was a plan. And then, and I was thinking, maybe I'll come back. Maybe not. We'll see. Well, I, I can't, how, how, when you were, when you were actively practicing for, for the Olympic team, how many hours a day were you putting in? And was it, was it basically every, you know, five or six days a week? Was it seven days a week? Uh, how yeah. does that work? It was interesting. I was actually trying to remember that today. I was listening to another podcast and someone was just talking about how she was working six days a week on average through her twenties and thirties. And that's kind of one big thing of how she propelled to where she's at. Um, I was, let's see, during high school, it was only five days a week. During college, it was about 20. The, the NCAA tops you out at, not, at 20 hours a week. Um, oh, wow. And then, and that's just for sports in general because sure. you know, you're a student athlete and all that stuff. Right. Um, but then after college, it's like, that's your job, man. Like <laughs> you are in it. Uh, so we were training, I think, uh, depends on the week and the month, but 11 to 14 times a week. And wow. so- it was, you know, in many cases, it was literally twice a day for a couple yeah. of hours each session. And, um, you know, heart, uh, your heart rate training, your cardiovascular is a big part of the sport, um, as well as obviously lifting weights and then practicing the skill of actually rowing the boat. Um, so all of that combined is, you know, it, I mean, shoot, it was probably 30, 40 hours when you count sort of the warmups and cool downs and all that other stuff a week for three or four years after college. 
That's incredible. Um, wow. And I can't imagine the just the sheer amount of discipline that's required to compete at that level has to have served you in really a lot of other areas of your life. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I t I've talked about this on other shows and, and I'll talk about it on this one, which is, um, you know, I definitely have built up this, this discipline, um, you know, hard work and stuff. It came, it, it came to me sort of from a young age. Cause I had trouble in school. Actually, I actually was diagnosed in fourth grade with like a learning disability. Mm -hmm. I saw, you know, it wasn't like, the typical thing of dyslexia that most people think where you like see things backwards, but that's like the easiest way to describe it. Um, and you know, I struggled in math and spelling and all that sort of stuff. So I ended up having to go into, uh, basically special classes before school or, and do extra homework after school. And so I was really upset about it at fourth grade. And then something eventually clicked for me, which is like, this is what it is. And I now, if I just power through this, I'm going to probably get through it. And I ended up graduating this program, I think in less than four years, which at the time was probably the fastest anyone had gone through that program and graduated. Wow. And, um, and so that really stuck with me of like, okay, you can't always control, you know, what you're born with or what, what you have coming in, but you can definitely control the effort and the attitude that you bring to it. And then, you know, forward that to sports and business and life and relationships and all the other stuff that we could talk about. Um, I've just had a lot of reps at it, frankly. <laughs> well, and, and it sounds like, you know, even overcoming the, the learning disability was really a discipline in and of itself. You were already going to school. Now you're going before school and after school, you're putting yeah. in additional reps, uh, even to just overcome it. And, and you did it quicker than, than anyone uh, previously had. Uh, that's, I mean, that's the, the almost, you know, an incredible feat. Well, it is not almost, it is a, a, an incredible feat and uh, really set, probably set the stage for you to be able to conquer anything else. Um, so I, and I was definitely blessed with great parents, by the way, who like <laughs> signed me up for that, who could afford it, who could, you know, yeah. push me to actually do the work, you know, all that good stuff. So we all, I always talk about for the Olympics, at least it takes a tribe to, to yeah. send someone to the Olympics from donations to meal prep, to all that stuff, you know, all the not little things. Um, and, and, uh, anyways, so it, it wasn't necessarily all me and I, and I can't take a hundred percent credit, but it was, I ended up doing the work, but I had a lot of right. good influences helping. Was there ever times where you wanted to quit and just say, you know, I, I, this is too much, uh, at any point during, during your career. And, and maybe this would still been when you were younger. Um, and, and your parents said, stick it out. You can do this. You know, what, what was the, um, what was the push there? Or was it all just something you wanted, or you said it takes a village, you know, so I'm right. curious on, on, cause I, cause I think parents struggle with this a lot. Like yeah. my child is into this particular sport or, or extracurricular activity, but they're frustrated and they want to quit. And like, what do you mm -hmm. do? Like, do you let them quit or do you not let them quit? Right. Well, I haven't, uh, let's see. I think it was my fifth grade football team and it was through the boys and girls club. So it was like a wreck thing. And, um, I was telling my parents, as I'm sure many parents who are listening have heard, you know, the coach is a jerk and <laughs> it was, not until later in the season that they actually realized that the coach was the problem. But, but through that, it was like, no, like he's just being tough on you guys. Cause it's yeah. a tough sport and blah, blah, sure. blah. And, and you don't quit. You see this through, like you committed to the season. You can't let your teammates down. Like I got a lot right. of those good lessons, but then sure. I also realized like, no, the coach is actually just a bad person and shouldn't be in charge of a fifth grade football team. Yeah. <laughs> um, I 
I have I have to pause here a second. I had the exact same experience. I only did Pop Warner football or whatever we called it uh, in fifth grade one year. The coach and I was, you know, in fifth grade, I didn't know the coach was a disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, but but looking back, I was like, oh man, that coach was brutal and and not in a good way. Uh, just yeah. just a maybe not even a great guy kind of kind of thing. So I I understand that. I ended up pivoting. Uh, I was a tennis player, so I I stayed with tennis. But but uh, yeah, it drove me away, and it wasn't because I wimped out. It was just like, no, this is not, there's no fun in this. And maybe right. there shouldn't be a lot of fun, but there should be a little tiny bit. And this coach just sucked all of it out. hundred percent. Yeah. It's so to answer your question, it's like, there's a line between, you know, push through and do what's hard and do, do the thing that makes you uncomfortable and yeah. then do, uh, you know, are you in a healthy environment? Is this really yeah. a productive thing for you? You know? Um, and how how important has coaching been? I imagine as an Olympic athlete, coach every Olympic athlete has a coach, I'm sure, mm-hmm. um, about pretty much every type of athlete has a coach. So um, how important has coaching been um, in order to, you know, sort of just being able to sit down and do the work, say, okay, you know, the coach says, do this, I'm going to do that because the coach knows, knows the, the program and the path. Um, you know, being coachable, I imagine, is just a critical aspect of life. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, you said it like every athlete has a coach along the way somewhere, if not multiple coaches at multiple different times. And there's, there's definitely an element of like picking a coach and, and, you know, trying to find someone who aligns with you, but there's also an element of like going with someone who just can't has succeeded in their own uh, path and then now can teach it to you and then trying to like learn it a new way. And, and I had, as I said, I had really great coaches, some really bad coaches, all of whom certainly had more experience than me and knew a little bit of something. And I frankly learned something from all of them. And I, I really seriously, uh, think one of my best traits as a, as a real estate agent, as a business person, and as just a human being and a friend and whatever is that coachability aspect is like being able to take someone's opinion or their thought or their feedback and, and then apply, you know, think about it critically, of course, but then actually try it, apply it and see how it works in, in my situation. And, um, you know, if you can apply that when your coach is a jerk or a bad coach and you can say, what's the one thing that I can learn from this person, right. all you're doing is improving your ability to be coachable and to, and to really take advantage when you get a good one. Well, that's true because coaches can be jerks and still be right. You're right. And yep. so a, a lot of times I know I've had, uh, you know, whether any sort of teacher or coach in my life, they're not always nice and friendly, um, but, uh, but, but they could also be, be accurate in, in what they're wanting me to do. And I've, I've sort of learned, and I don't know, I'm curious what your thoughts are is, you know, we have so much independence and individuality in, uh-huh. in the United States here is, and we're taught every child is unique and special. And, and I think I think kids are probably becoming harder to coach because um, I don't know how much um, how much they're being taught to listen to someone else who might know a bit better or, or a bit more. And I, I wonder if um, I wonder if that's as, as strong as it was when you and I were younger. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, yes, every kid is special and unique and all of that, like everyone is. Um, but there, you know, there's things like the Myers Briggs or, you know, disc profiles that all real estate agents know about. And like, we all also fit into patterns and, and not that we're all predictable per se, but, um, 
but just because you think you're, you know, a perfect special snowflake, you know, doesn't mean you can't also learn something from, uh, from a very like broad stroking piece of advice. Yeah. So how did you make the switch from, from Olympic athlete to, uh, to real estate? So, um, I would go down to San Diego with my team at various teams. Cause there's an Olympic training center down there. And as you can imagine, the weather's great all year round. Sure. Um, so we'd go down there for various lengths of stay in, uh, for training camps. And, uh, one, uh, with one of the teams, we, we couldn't stay on campus because it was all full. So we had to get a Airbnb and, we stayed with a couple of different people, one of whom we only needed half of their large house. And they said, you know, okay, that's cool. You can have the half. We'll, we'll be living in the other half. And, um, it was kind of weird, but it, but for us, we were like, cool, we'll just stay there. It's five minutes away from the training center. We don't care. We're just trying to crash on a couch basically. And they, uh, they're real estate agents and they were flipping houses also. Oh, and so, Basically, I just sort of trying to be friendly and make it not awkward that we were kind of crashing in their couch and like eating all this food in their kitchen um, would would just talk to them about what I did, you know, the the Ford model, like family, recreation, occupation, dreams, basically, like, what do you guys do? And, and what's your life like? And I learned pretty quickly that they were real estate agents, they were investors, and they were living a lifestyle that I thought was pretty cool. He was training for an Ironman at the time. They had three wow. kids. They had <laughs> all all things looked pretty good, frankly, from a lifestyle perspective. And so I just kept in touch with them. And we stayed with them a handful of times uh, after that. And after the Olympics, they invited me down back to San Diego to talk to me about their business and what they actually did. And the end of that two day little kind of recruitment, I guess, I, I don't really know what to better call it. Um, they offered me this opportunity to effectively open up a, a satellite office of their operation uh, in my area, which is in the Bay Area. And they would support me with all their VAs and all of their systems from San Diego. And the licenses, you know, it was one broker license because it's one state. So sure. it worked out pretty well. So that is. I, and I said, that sounds pretty good. It sounds really flexible. Um, you know, I can get my real estate license and if I don't like it, I'll go into commercial or I'll do something else. And, and maybe I'll go back to training who knows, but, um, that is, that is how I started. And, and so when, when opening the office or when starting your own, you know, your own practice, um, how did you go about finding clients? You know, that's, I'm just, I'm always fascinated. I don't produce myself. I have a license. I, I, I bought things myself, but I've never worked with, with the public. Um, cause it's not really what I do, uh, but mm -hmm. I'm always fascinated with agents and how they get started. So, you know, how was it that you started finding people to work with? Well, these, these guys being that they had sort of that investment flair, um, were focused on foreclosures and that sort of thing. The, the broker, um, I believe still holds the record for the most REOs sold in Southern California. I think it was in 2009 or 2010, he did like 750 or something wow. ridiculous, you know, um, back in the 09, uh, 2010, sure. something like that. And, um, and so he was like, that just is a model it's transactional, but it's a, it's a model that works. Cause, um, people in foreclosure don't care if you're brand new, they care, like I need to get out of, they just want the deal. Basically. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so I basically started cold calling lists of pre foreclosures and, um, you know, just anything that looked like it had some hair on it, frankly. And, and I 
got the mojo dialer. I would do triple line dialer a couple <laughs> sure. hours a day, set appointments, you know, you know, the model, like that's what I was doing. And then, um, in the first couple of deals, I would get a, a, an appointment and he would get on a Southwest flight, fly up, do the appointment with me. Cause I wasn't licensed at the time he was. And so he would be the agent. I would be just his assistant basically. And then I got to learn firsthand what he was doing and all of that. And then once I got licensed, I was just going on those appointments myself. And I did nine deals my first year and I almost did 11, but two of them crazy stories, but they were foreclosures and they got foreclosed on because the sellers were just so deep in denial. It was, I saw hundreds of thousands in one case, like a couple hundred thousand dollars of of net equity evaporate for somebody. And it was like, I, it, it like kind of crushed me, frankly, because I, I put in all this work. They, I, I worked so hard to get them to understand where they were at and it just disappeared. I'm like, I don't know if I can keep doing this forever. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but that's how I started is, is in the foreclosure short sale, you know, notice the default world. Are you still working mostly with investors or is that, um, or are you working more with, with the public, you know, buyers, sellers, that kind of thing as well? Uh, I am working exclusively with the public. I, except for my own personal investing. No, sure. I, I do. Well, that's not entirely true. I have a, a couple of buddies and a couple of acquaintances who, who do want to flip and who do want to do some investing. So I keep my eyes out, but the market here is just so hard, uh, yeah. for, you know, rentals and flips and stuff because, um, there's such a demand for housing right now in the Bay area that even if something's a total dog, it sells for a premium and there's no margin it in it to flip it. Right. Right. Yeah. It's the Bay area boy. It's just its own animal. It's uh, it's oh absolutely gosh, incredible yeah. that in New York, they, I think they like trade off back and forth mm-hmm. with what's uh, what's more exclusive and expensive. Um, we're here in Chicago. Things are a little bit more reasonable uh, here, but um, we're seeing activity slow down. We have about 700 realtors at our company here and uh you know, it's amazing because I would think like I'm buying right now because rates are, you know, where they're at, of course. Yeah. And I just assumed everybody would be, not everyone, but a lot of people would be coming out of the stay at home order earlier this year, like I did saying, I want a bigger place. Um, yep. And some some brokers are experiencing that and a lot are saying, oh, it's pretty quiet right now. So it's really unusual time. Well, you know, I'm, I, I our geography, I don't know Chicago that well. Um and I hope to go there. I, we were actually going to go there this summer. My wife went to UW Madison and we were going to do, sure. you know, some time in there and then go up to Madison and whatever, but yeah, I yeah. haven't been. So um, I don't know the geography, but here there has been a real trend of eastward movement, meaning everyone in Silicon Valley through the peninsula up to San Francisco has gone to the East Bay. Yeah. Um because the density is a little bit less, your money goes a lot farther on a dollar per square foot basis. And then all of our people, like our current residents are moving to like Sacramento, Tahoe, Idaho, Oregon, wow. it's, you know, Texas, you name it there. It's East. It's everyone's moving East for whatever reason. Yeah. Yeah. I have a friend who has a rent control, um, in, in the city and, um, mm-hmm. he's been, he's been there for like 20 years and he makes incredible money. He probably makes, well, anyway, I won't get, get, get into it, but he makes a good living and he lives in this little tiny apartment. He's like, I can never give this up because yeah. it, you know, it's, it, you know, he, 
it's really, it's really pretty crazy. He's like, you know, one day I'll be able to afford a $3 million place, but he lives in this little tiny, you know, basically studio uh, with his wife um, because he gets the greatest deal ever. So I know, you know, rentals are just, you know, so unusual in New York and San Francisco. Uh, We don't have rent control here. So everything's a bit bit different. Um, But let's talk about, um, about marketing because you, you Mm -hmm. are obviously a a marketing guy like, like me. Um, Talk a little bit about sort of how you market your business and, and, you know, even any suggestions for our audience who might be thinking of, you know, right now as things kind of slow down towards the end of the year, what could I be doing to gear up my marketing for either early next year or even right now? Yeah, I've got two different thoughts on this. One is probably the answer you're expecting to some degree and the other one may not be. So I'll start with that one, sure. which is my my personal opinion is that the best marketing you do is to kill it for your client. Because if you do that, yeah. you will have a walking billboard for eternity um, with that person. I, for example, just got uh, literally on Monday, something it's Friday today, uh, house closed. Um, I worked with that buyer for maybe two weeks, showed them a couple of off markets, negotiated, you know, we, we went into it, but it was a short engagement and they've already sent me two referrals and, you know, and so that to me, like one, a couple of the things that I really did when I joined the Gunderman groups, I told you I was doing foreclosures for about two years and I was like, there's gotta be a better way. So fast forward, I, I pitched myself to the top team in the East Bay who I knew socially through mutual contacts. And, um, they agreed to ultimately bring me on. And all I did was learn their, their flavor of real estate. And that flavor included, just leaning so hard into the fiduciary duty of our license and representing people's interest, understanding the contract backwards, forwards, left, right, center, and um, knowing how to open and close loopholes, knowing how to exploit a solar, solar lease or what a test hole is, and really understanding this as not just like I'm trying to lead generate and be transactional, but like I am genuinely looking out for this person's best interest, especially when you've got a million dollar price point. Right. Um, it's, it goes so far. Um, so I would say if people are listening to this, their business is starting to slow down for the year, which all of ours is for the moment. Um, start reading the contract that you write, you know, really seriously go through that thing line by line, start taking notes, read it three times before the end of the year and know it like, you know, any other document that you've ever spent time with. Like if you can then tell your client, like they call you with a question and you're in your car and you say, yeah, line eight section B needs to be blah, blah, and blah. Oh, you're a superstar. That way. They're like, wait a second. Are you looking? And I was like, no, no, no. I just know it, you know? Yeah. And and so that to me is absolutely paramount if you want to really knock it out for people. Um, and then beyond that, it's it's then, you know, definitely asking for those referrals and, um, you know, staying in touch with the people who you've closed with, especially the ones you have a good connection and rapport with. Um, you know, I always, anytime someone sends me a, a client, I always send them something of value, like a gift card. And I don't send it for like five or 10. I send it for like 75 or a hundred bucks. Yeah. Granted my, my commissions are, are larger because our transactions are larger, but um, that is absolutely, in my opinion, you know, you take care of those people, you train them, you reinforce that behavior. Um, so from an easy marketing standpoint, that's one. And then beyond that, it's like, 
you have to start thinking about if people Google you or people come across you on Facebook or whatever, um, what are they going to see? Yeah. You know, what are, what are like, if you go Google my name right now, you'll find that everything on there I've put there intentionally. And I own that front page for my name. Now, are people searching for me, my name specifically, not necessarily unless they hear me somewhere. Um, but I want to make sure that I am absolutely controlling that a hundred percent. And that part is free. You know, that's a really, really strong point. I'm, I've done, gosh, we've done a few hundred episodes now. I don't think anyone's really specifically talked about that. And even the referrals that obviously you're getting quite a, quite a number of, you know, a lot of times those referrals might also Google you just to sort of see what you're about, you know, even though you've came highly recommended from, from the person they know. Um, so that is such a really strong point. And, you know, make sure that you do, that your online presence is what you want to be seen. And uh -huh. if there are things out there that, you know, would maybe negatively impact your business that you're either okay with that or that you're willing to make those adjustments um, because you're absolutely right. And then this goes into, you know, what's my Zillow profile look like? Yep. You know, do I have a Google My Business page? Do I have some good reviews there? Um, but also what does my social media profile look like? My personal one, is it public? If it is, what am I posting? Is it okay? Am I posting things that maybe I wouldn't want people to see? These are all, you were talked, you know, you use the word intentional. This is really important stuff yeah. um, because everyone's going to, just assume everyone's going to Google you and and Hans has done a great job. His website is is really, uh, I'm, not, I'm not speaking to Hans now, of course, speaking to the audience, but his website is absolutely really impressive. I really encourage everyone to check it out. Um, it, it'll be there in the show notes, um, but you'll see the intentionality he put into this uh, into this. Um, website. And again, it's also, you know, promoting his, uh, he, he does a lot of videos, he does a podcast, um, mm -hmm. you know, he, he has a lot of good content on there. So if you go to his website, which you know, you Google his name, that's what's coming up first, I can just go to that homepage. And I know a lot about him. Um, and he, you put a ton of time into that. And and that is really, really important. And it's how we did a lot of research for you, uh, you know, to have yeah, you yeah. on the show. Um, but boy, I, that what a smart move. Yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, the way that I'm, so I'm obviously fortunate to be on a team and, and I get leads from the team. The team has overflow. My, my mentors are starting to trust me more. So they're giving me a few more of their kind of value clients. Cause they're not too far from retiring. Like that's a whole strategic play. And when I first joined that team, I was like, my number one marketing channel is to market to my team leaders. And I yeah. literally thought of it that way. Like, how do I bring them value? How do I prove to them that I can handle this? Um, and that's like what I did for the first year and change probably. And then it worked. And now I got a lot of trust. I get a lot of leads. I get a lot of opportunities with their past clients that they don't want to work with anymore. And, you know, it's, it's teeing me up in a different way. So marketing, you can go buy ads and be transactional in that way, which I'm not saying don't do. I'm just saying like, think a little bit more intentionally, like where's the lower hanging fruit for you? Because chances are it's probably right in front of you and it might be free or pretty darn cheap. Yeah. And you, you just, you said something so important. I, I want to just circle back to it where you said marketing to, in your case, you marketed to your team leaders. And I don't think anyone else has ever mentioned that as well in, in specifically in that way. And, and so if I were an agent right now, which, which I technically am, but I don't practice, I would be begging every top producer in my, in my office and begging them, meaning I'd be trying to provide them value, trying to build a relationship so that when they have open houses, I can go sit at those open houses. Um, you know, if leads aren't flowing your way from, from the group you're in or just the company you work for, 
go up to those top producers and say, I, I, I am dedicated to helping you sell these homes. Can you let me come in and do it? And I prompt you got to be persistent. Obviously, you know about persistence, um, but that would be, you know, that's marketing to your team leaders. That's one, one way to do that. And that's going to get you a ton of experience. Do as many of those as you can. Definitely. And, and psychologically, the other thing I think about relative to the website and the videos I put out, like yeah. I see this still sticks in my mind. Like there's an agent that I've seen on, on social media who put something out uh, at the beginning of October. So Q beginning of Q4, right. Um, that was like the 90 day home ownership challenge. And I still oh. remember this because it, and, and to me, I didn't, I, it struck a chord negatively with me because I, I, it, it's sort of like, oh, you know, you should buy a house and here's why. Like, I don't want to find people that I have to convince to transact. Right. What I want to find is the people who are, who are actively looking to transact, who have that motivation and then tell them what they need to know to do it. Give them some value with my YouTube videos or my, my social media posts about things to look out for or, um, you know, whatever the case is and then, um, and then draw them into my world. And, um, that just generally with my newsletter that I put out, you know, the YouTube videos, it's, it's all about giving value away, explaining stuff to them that I would explain to my own clients. I hopefully in the way that I explain it to my clients, um, so that they can, they can genuinely be, uh, helped in the five or 10 minutes they spend on my stuff. And, when I bring, I think when you bring that to your engagement and you stop trying to convince people to buy and yeah. just, and just be a resource when people are ready to buy and just be consistently in front of them for that, um, you can't lose on that one. Yeah. You're basically talking about attraction versus persuasion, right? Persuasion. Uh, you know, a lot of times people want to study persuasion. They want to know how to overcome those objections. And of course, yes, you should have, you know, answers to traditional object objective type of questions and, and statements so that you can service your clients. But if you're trying to it's a lot easier to attract people that are already interested in wanting to go down that path. In mm-hmm. your case, you create lots of great content. People find that content online um, and then think, hey, this, this is a guy who's providing a tremendous amount of value. I'm going to go with him. And Hans doesn't have to persuade people as much uh, to you know convert them from a renter to a buyer. He's already finding people that are interested in purchasing because of his content is, is centered around that, which I think makes a ton of sense. It's really smart. Yeah, I appreciate that. I got to say like <clears throat> nothing I've done is original necessarily. And by that I mean it's not like I invented any of the strategies. My YouTube 100% came from Karen Carr. Um and if you don't know her go Google her. She's got some cool YouTube stuff. Um and she's get she gets like 75% of her business from YouTube leads. And wow. she doesn't even I don't well I think she has less than 10,000 YouTube subscribers and most of her videos get, you know, a couple hundred, maybe a couple thousand views. Like it's, she's not like a, a, a viral sensation per yeah. se, but she kills it. Um, and then, you know, podcasting, I do have a podcast. I've been doing it for over a year. It is not a real estate specific podcast. It's a, um, more of a mindset, you know, human interest, uh, storytelling podcast of, of people who happen to be good at business in most cases. Um, and, and the reason I started that was to, uh, basically build my network. My, my mentor in that area is Travis Chapel, who has the build your network podcast. I hired him as my podcast coach. He taught me everything he knew at the time about it. And basically 
long and short of it, it was the reason to start a podcast is not to build an audience. It's to have an excuse to get in front of the guest. And, and if you then say like, if you called me up and said, Hey, can I get 30 minutes of your time? I'm fairly generous. I might give it to you, but I might be busy. But if you called me and said, can I get you on my podcast? I'd be like, absolutely. Hell yeah. No, no problem. And, and that logic works on pretty much anybody you want to get in front of. So that's really why I started it and, and continue to do it. Yeah. The podcast is called another way to play. And again, we encourage everyone watching or listening right now to subscribe, check it out, listen to some, some stories, uh, storytelling from, uh, top business, uh, execs, um, from, from all over. And, uh, Hans and I were actually talking about this before, before we started, I'm just going to mention it because, um, Hans seemed to be in agreement with me that one of the suggestions, Hans and I are podcasters and we both do this to give to just provide value. Um, and it's something that um, is a lot of fun and probably uh, I can't speak for Hans, but I imagine provides him with a lot of satisfaction of being able to share these stories and help other people um, you know, learn from these top business execs. And of course we do a very similar thing on our show. And um, what we were talking about, you know, podcasting and for everyone listening who thinks that this is something that they can't do, maybe they don't have the voice for it or they don't have the knack for this sort of conversation, you probably, are better would be better at this than you think but also if you can commit to it you know real estate um and of course hans knows this better than i do real estate is hyper local you could create a hyper local podcast for your local community um you know if it was me if i was a realtor i i don't have a lot of friends look i've had a license for years and years not one of my friends has ever said hey can you help me buy or sell home because they they just don't think of me in that way because I don't position myself that way. Mm-hmm. But if I were wanting to to get more people interested in in what uh, you know me as a as a real estate agent, I would be reaching out to local businesses. You know, if you think about it, local businesses are always getting hammered by all sorts of advertising companies, mm-hmm. newspapers, billboards, TV, radio. Hey, advertise! You know, they want them to spend money to advertise their business. You're gonna you can call up these local businesses. Say, hey, I'm creating. I have a podcast where I feature local businesses in my three block area or wherever you live, uh, your town, your city, um, your, your county, whatever. And you can say, I, I just wanted to feature you and hear your story about why you started your business. And I'm going to promote this to our listeners. They're going to love that. Just like Han said, when he gets called and says, hey, can you be on my show? He jumps at it. I do the same thing when people ask me to be on the show. I don't think I've ever turned anyone down. Even if it's a really tiny podcast, I'm, right. I'm happy to do it um, because it might just uh, get somebody else listening going, hey, I want to listen to what DJ's uh, podcast is about and, and Hans's podcast. And um, this is something anybody can do. You don't need a ton of equipment. I will say the hardest part about it for everyone listening is actually not the interview because all you have to do is get a guest and say, tell me your story and, and it'll probably go okay. The hardest part, and at least in my perspective, uh, after doing this for, for four or five years now, is the post-production. And so mm-hmm. Hans and I were talking about that and he's like, actually, I have a post-production company. So um, yeah. can you tell us a little bit about that? So anyone listening, by the way, before, I'm sorry, Hans, I'm, I'm stepping all yeah. over you, but I just wanted to say, um, you can start a podcast. You can interview mm-hmm. local businesses. Think about the value you're providing to them. And that's just one idea. There's a million podcast ideas, but that's a right. good one because then they're going to want to promote it to their to their clientele, their social following. But then the hard part is is all the, the editing and, and the production. Um, so tell us about, uh, about streamlinepodcast.com. Definitely. Well, um, I'll just, I'll just piggyback on what you said, then we'll get into streamline, which is, um, if you're going to start a content based strategy, like a podcast or a YouTube channel, um, mentally it, you have to commit for like a year 
to a that, minimum to do this. My, my when I when I brought this idea to my boss and he goes, here's the thing, you have to commit for a year or don't do it at all. And I was like, yep. and I had to think about it. It took me like two more years before I was like, okay, I'm gonna try this. And yeah. I, I just said, I'm gonna do it for a year. And we had like no listeners for like half a year. And uh, right. so yes, you're absolutely right. So the point is, A, it just the algorithms, it's crowded, like whether it's YouTube, Facebook, whatever, I don't care, do it for a year. Yeah. Because it also, like if you say some, you, someone looks you, you looks up your show and you've got seven episodes and they were all right. from like eight months ago, that looks really sad. Yeah, it does. <laughs> um, at least if you if you close down your show, but you have 150 episodes, it's like, okay, you probably moved on to like a new project or something like that's respectable. It, if nothing else. Um, right. So same thing with YouTube videos and all that sort of stuff. Um, but, but basically at the beginning of COVID when, uh, everything was up in the air, we didn't know if the sky was going to fall or not. Um, I was listening to Gary Keller's podcast a lot sure. and he was talking about basically demanding more, uh, value out of the dollars that you're spending in your business and, and, mm -hmm. and, challenging us to see where we could cut 10% a month. And for me, I, I was already running pretty lean personally and, and in my business. And I thought, okay, um, where is the next biggest expenditure? And it was my podcast editing. And I did, I've never edited my own podcast. I've always paid someone. I've had enough money to, to commit and invest into it. I've always paid someone for logos and all the other things that I've created. Um, and I realized like, I don't think I'm getting the highest value I possibly can out of this 500 bucks or whatever it was every month. Um, and I was like, so there at the very minimum, I can probably get the same thing done for less. And so I talked to a buddy who was in a mastermind that I was part of who had a VA company and he had done at the time, 600 episodes of his show. He's a daily show. So it was racking them up. Um, and I was like, who are you using? And he introduced me to his guy. And then that guy started talking. And then meanwhile, another one of our buddies in the same podcast or in the same mastermind was thinking about starting a, a company. And so we all kind of got together with the fourth guy and said, we're all having this issue of paying too much, not being delivered. Uh, we're not monetizing these shows. So these are all loss leaders for our brands sure. personally or whatever. And so we're like, we got, we can do this better. So we, we created this this thing called streamlined podcast, which is essentially a service that keeps podcasters podcasting. And we know that the majority of shows out there won't monetize or won't monetize big enough to, to warrant, you know, making it a full-time job. And so how can we provide the highest value for the lowest cost? And, and effectively we have taken, um, what, what any person like the industry average for, for editing and cut it almost in half and increased the value of the show notes, the post-production, um, the ID3 and metadata tagging and social media graphics all rolled into that one low cost. And, and the, the goal is to make it as easy as possible and economical as possible for someone to start a show and keep the show going. Yeah, I love that. I it's so funny. I I uh, up until about a year and a half ago, 
uh, I was doing all of that myself. I'm, I'm the guy, I'm a guy who builds websites and I'm a marketing guy. So I, I love getting my hands dirty, but it's really not the best use of my time. So I, I know how to do it. Um, you know, and, and, but it takes so much time. Mm -hmm. And so I did it for the first, we've done what, 220 episodes. I probably did it for the first 120 and I was killing myself after like three years of doing it. I was like, what am I doing? Um, this is not where my time is best spent, but I was just didn't want to spend the money. I knew I could do it for free and yeah. I would do a good job, but I was killing myself doing it. And finally, uh, you know, now I have somebody to do it, but I wish I would have had streamlinepodcast.com because back when I started, it was, it was so expensive. Um, and I couldn't find a reasonable solution for that. So I encourage everyone who's listening, if you're thinking about starting a show, um, don't do the post-production yourself. Yeah. Um, it's one of the smartest things I ever did was to, to pass that over. And streamlinepodcast.com is is the place to go because they're incredibly uh, reasonably priced, um, and it's something that's affordable, and you can do it, and you don't have you can just focus on the show, um, and yeah. don't worry about the all the technical aspects of it because it is a bear to do. And same thing with gear. Like I've got, we've got a bunch of blog posts up on our website that you can go check out if you just want to get some free resources of all the gear that I bought. I mean, the entire setup that I have that I, that you're listening to this on costs let well under a hundred dollars. And yeah. I've recorded every single uh, one of my podcasts on this microphone. I've got a ring light. I've got literally my iPhone here that you're looking at, which the phones these days are super good. So why buy another one? And, um, you know, you, you kind of in garage band or whatever operating system, it's so easy to start this kind of stuff. Um, once you kind of get a little bit of a nudge and hopefully some of those blog posts, if you go to the resources section of that website, you can read through those and click on links and it'll take you all kinds of places. Awesome. Well, I think that's a really great place to sort of wrap up. We've talked about so much. Oh my gosh. Uh, I can't even recap all the topics, but but really, I think that the main point that that I think our, our audience is going to take away from this is, is just consistency, discipline, push through. You know, the good news is, and, and Hans mentioned Gary Keller uh, in his podcast. Of course, Hans works at, at uh, Keller Williams, which of course is, is Gary's uh, Gary founded company. Um, you know, Gary's all about having coaches and, and you putting your head down and doing the work. And really this, this business is, is so much really not dissimilar from the training that, that Hans I'm sure did to become an Olympic athlete. Um, it's discipline, it's hard work. And the good news is there's so many people that have done it before us. You know, Hans has resources on streamlinepodcast.com. If you want to start a podcast, go there and he's got all sorts of, like, you don't have to spend a fortune on gear. He can take care of the post-production. Um, you know, Gary Keller's got tremendous, he's got books and, and podcasts and, and resources as well to learn how to grow a business. You don't even have to be with Keller Williams. You can learn Gary Keller's approach. Um, the, I guess the point is get a coach, uh, get, get coachable and, uh, stay disciplined. Um, and, uh, you know, Hans, uh, gosh, you just basically shared that same message over and over today. Um, and I really hope that resonated with our audience. I want to remind everyone to please listen to Hans's podcast, which is a 
another way to play. So uh, Google that, look it up on, on your podcast directory. You can also find it right on Hans's website, which is hansstruzina.com. That's H-A-N-S-S-T-R-U-Z-Y-N-A.com. Uh, Hans, on behalf of our, our audience, we want to thank you um, for, for your time today. You're an incredible guest. Uh, we're super excited to have an Olympic athlete uh, turn top real estate agent. And by, can I share your production for this year or, or is that something you yeah, want to keep Yeah, bring private? it, man. Bring it. Hans I mean, it hasn't all closed yet. So, <laughs> uh, well, Hans is on pace to close 30 million. This, this is his personal production this year. And there's about a month and a half left and he's going to get there 30 million. And you are in your fifth year. That is yeah. beyond incredible. Right. So for Thank everyone you, listening, go to listen to his podcast. I, I'm going to listen to his podcast because uh, I want to increase the production that I do for my company. And uh, I want to get to the level that you're at. So um, for everyone uh, listening, though, we also on behalf of Hans and myself, we want to thank you for continuing to listen to support our show, supporting our guests. And um, we want to remind everyone to if you want to help us grow our show, there's two th ways to do that. Number one, tell a friend, think of one other real estate professional that could benefit from having heard from from Hans, uh, Olympic athlete, turn top producer and this episode um, shoot them a link to it you can find us on our website which is keeping it real pod.com we have every episode we've ever done we have them broken down into the different show categories so if you just want to listen to all the top one percent producers like this one with hans we have a place to do that and you don't even need a podcast app for it just go to our website and the other way is to follow us on facebook you can find us at facebook.com forward slash keeping it real pod we post all of our interviews that we do while we're recording them there. We also find articles every single day that online that are written specifically designed to help agents grow their business. And we post it. That's all we post. There's no fat. It's all meat. So keeping it, or sorry, uh, facebook.com forward slash keeping it real pod. Hans, thank you so much. I am so, so excited that you were on the show and we are uh, excited to watch your continued trajectory upwards too. Yeah, man. Well, I appreciate that. Um, thank you for the opportunity to be here. And I'll just leave the audience with this. When you start to put uh, consistent action to work over time, key phrase over time, yeah. um, amazing things will happen. So uh, thank you for having me on, man. I appreciate it. And uh, to all of you listening, I hope to connect with you soon. All right. Thanks. We'll see everyone next time.